Welcome, everyone. This is Grace Asagra of Quantum Nurse Podcast, and welcome to Freedom International live stream. So we are happy and very excited again and truly grateful because I know our guest, Joaquin Flores, is a busy man. You know, he is a and he, he is an author, an analyst, and a curator of one of the most fantastic and busiest uh, telegram, New Resistance Telegram. So you can get him there. You can really, it won't be a waste of your time. It will be truly very exciting if you can be part of that telegram, all right? So welcome uh, for Joaquin. And we are, I am also happy that, that my friends from your neighborhood, Joaquin, <laughs> is joining me, like from Poland, I have Roy Kolan, and from Germany, I have Hartmut Schumacher. And so just like um, we've been inundated with a lot of crazy times, so I made an, this opportunity, do, did my best to collaborate and be friends with friends from all over the world. And so this is the most important thing that we always have to remember, I guess, that no matter what's going on, there's always that opportunity to make the best of it. And so we came together and here we are. So Joaquin, I thought what would be best to start today is um since yesterday was the celebration of martin luther king's which we for me it doesn't have to be just a one day okay so maybe we could start with that and i'm truly glad that you posted also matthew eric's you know our um newsletter because i said wow this is really great newsletter and i want you to start with that and maybe you could connect Martin Luther King's, John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, no, not Jr. Robert Kennedy, and also maybe perhaps Malcolm X. Why I say that? Because I just also viewed the documentary film Four Died Trying. And before 2020, I didn't see a lot of the connections, like the, the strong connections among the historical events happening in each of these individual. So please start with that. Kind of two kind of big things, obviously every year MLK Junior Day. Uh, so we have that. But also uh, there was a, a very large um, Iranian uh, assault on some U.S. and Israeli assets inside of Iraq uh, that just occurred. So this is like in, in connection with global tensions on the rise, that would be like the first thing that I would mention as kind of like one step forward in escalation. Um, in terms of uh, very interesting. Um, so, yeah, if you're familiar with Matt Eretz's work on Martin Luther King Jr., uh, it's very important to understand that there have been large attempts to malign and to defame uh, MLK Jr. over the years. Um, there have been a lot of um, reports that were created by the FBI, and uh, which means that you can trust it, you know, I mean, about as much as an FBI report. And nevertheless, um, people take these reports that were meant to defame MLK Jr. 
um, as gospel. And this this relates to allegations that he um, was engaged in like all kinds of different sexual, bizarre sexual fetishes and things like this. Um, and there there isn't um, strong bi biographical evidence for this, but there's a very but it's a very high stakes game to destroy the real legacy of MLK Jr. At the same time, at the same time, it's like when it when you look at the entire world story, it's important to understand that America is not the world, and a lot of countries, uh, you know, in their deep history, sure they had. Um, slavery. Um, most parts of the world had slavery at some point in their deep history, um, but it might not be the what we, you know, called shadow slavery, like in the American experience, because many different types of labor throughout different centuries can be referred to as slavery by in terms of they were not paid or their payment after was in kind after many deductions. And you have kind of a blurring of the lines of things, but it's important to understand that while every country has some issues inside of it, they're not the same thing as the uniquely American experience. And yet the, there's a problem here, right? There, the problem is that the United States tries to export its own narrative, right? Like, so you have the United States, right? And the narrative is that it's a work in progress, right? The narrative, the dominant narrative um, that comes out of, and you can even look at from the point of view of, uh, of of constitutional theory and what types of Supreme Court justices, you know, people look at in terms of what is their view. And uh, the idea is that the United States is like a work in progress and the constitution is a living document, right? In this, in this connected to this idea. So now all of that may be true and it may be well and good, people can debate that, but that is used as a pretext to impose an American system onto other countries. And yet the United States does not have to establish that it has solved fundamental problems, right, before it goes ahead and, and, and superimposes those onto other countries. So it's a very strange narrative. It's like, hey, we're a problem and we're going to make our problems your problems and then we're going to solve our problems in your country. So, for example, take anywhere that the United States uses any of the so-called decolonial, anti-colonial, post-colonial or uh, intersectionality uh, critical race theory, these all have a place in the time where they're appropriate, don't misunderstand me. When these are used to wage a, a large uh, hegemonic struggle, you're talking about soft power, you're talking about um, a vast network of NGOs which is used around the world, and it's very strange to people. Just think about this, you know, put it into this context for, for a moment. So let's say you're in Poland, right? And Poland has all kinds of issues, right? And these are related to the, a lot of it has to do with re Poland's relationship to itself, Poland's relationship to its own elites, the divisions that go back to the communist period. But this is a unique history. They have tensions with Germany, they have tensions with Russia. I mean, it's a difficult place to be Poland, no doubt, right? But um, what they didn't have is a group of second-class citizens that composed 15% of the population that lived under Jim Crow conditions for you know, a number of decades following the failure of Reconstruction in the South after the Civil War in the 1860s. So um, this is uniquely American, right? And yet a lot of these American institutions are dedicated to preaching to other countries how to restructure how they view themselves, the question of nation, the question of ethnicity, 
all along this kind of American melting pot kind of trajectory, which again, one can make the argument that, and I'm not trying to hedge everything I'm saying, but just again, I'm open-minded person, right? One can make the argument that this is a solution to the United States. You cannot make the argument that the United States has any imperative, moral, political, historical, ethical to impose that lesson, those lessons onto other countries. And of course they never impose them you know, in the way that you would even, and I'm not suggesting those, they should ever be imposed, but in, in some kind, of, and the best things never are imposed because that's the nature of things being imposed. But if you were gonna impose something, you would think that you would look at the things that Martin Luther King was saying, not just the kind of the narrative that we've put onto him. And the things that Martin Luther King was getting into towards the very end of his short life, um, but in the in the, really the middle of his of his of his ministry, um, were socioeconomic issues, and they were going to take this this civil rights movement that had been mostly in the in um, parts of the South and really move it northward and focus on the issue of labor unions and issues of labor disparity of wages and exploitation at the workplace. And that was going to be a, 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 a obviously not not have any racial characteristic to it. This is clearly a class subject, a class issue. And uh, it looks like the FBI and all, they were just not going to have that. So um, that's how I would connect. I mean, I know these are like, I would connect that, you know, it's so important that there was an aspect of what Martin Luther King Jr. stood for that has been forgotten totally. And we've have all these kind of, you know, the symbolism. And it reminds me a lot of Gangs of New York, which is a great film. Uh, because they show the process of like when one group kills the other group, they take the other group's leader and they kind of make they kind of honor that leader as their own to kind of co-opt those people that they've conquered. You know, the Aztecs did that with the Toltecs, et cetera. Um, but it's um, so I, I kind of, you know, I'm kind of the way that that the American government uh, and the state institutions honor Martin Luther King Jr. is strange. You know what I mean? And um, and it's always weaponized, you see? And it's done in ways that can even be divisive. Yeah. Um, now, the four who tried, what was the film that you saw recently? The four, four died trying. Four died trying, yeah. Um, I think most, I think critical, you know, Martin Luther King and uh, JFK Jr. were critical. Um, you know, RFK and, and uh, Malcolm X, Again, these are such very different people. I mean, even the brothers are very different from each other, but Malcolm X and MLK are such different people. And when you get people like Ma Malcolm X, who came from a totally different orientation, was actually kind of looking at even uh, the, the failures of, of the civil rights movement. But these are the same failures of the civil rights movement that MLK would have recognized as he was preparing to take it to be like a class struggle and move to the northern cities. Um, Chicago, Detroit, et cetera, especially the auto, you know, automotive manufacturing center of the world at the time. So um, when you think about Malcolm X, you know, this is like an unfinished story, much like um, RFK. I mean, these are just kind of starting stories when they ended kind of prematurely um, with, uh, with JFK and, uh, and with, um, with MLK Jr., you definitely have like a more completed arc in there. You, you, you have more, more that happened in there, in there, what you can point to that was um, effective. And, and I, I think that 
Um, Malcolm X really more uh, kind of serves as a bridge in American history between understanding uh, and uh, the period and the radicalism uh, of the 50s and 60s that was muted. The radicalism was muted, but the civil rights, uh, the feeling of of that of um, nonviolent, um, nonviolent civil disobedience and nonviolent struggle as a as a means. Yeah. Whereas you would get um, people like Malcolm X would say, you know, look, no, we have to we have to fix these problems by any means necessary. You know, uh, you can't go to the negotiating table, you know, restricting what tools you're going to come, you know, and and use. So. Um, why would you bargain against yourself before you've even started dealing with the powers that be? Um, so, um, but yeah, it's, it's for me, I, I, you know, I just want to say that for me, those, this, we're looking at a period between the sixties for the early late sixties. And, um, and it's a decade before I was born, but those were the things that framed, you know, that these were the events that had framed my American experience, you know, being born, uh, in California in the 70s and kind of in the decade, the decade and that aftermath that followed that and and the um, the demoralization, you know, in the inner cities and the and the the way that the CIA began to really heavily import uh, cocaine and heroin into the inner cities. Um, how, how were semiotic weapons that had been documented and, you know, sold in um, to narco traffickers in Latin America decades ago. How are they winding up in the inner cities in the 1980s? You know, um, you, there are no gun manufacturing plants in the inner cities, you see. And, um, and yet you have these heavily armed, you know, gangs that appear in the 1980s, uh, Bloods and Crips. And in many ways, this is the aftermath of the disappointment of that, of the and many of the failures and shortcomings of the um, of both the civil rights movement and the more, you know, semi-radical movement that followed. Um, but um, yeah, I, I would say that MLK far more than Malcolm X. Malcolm X more symbolically and rhetorically challenged um, the mindset, let's say, of, for example, white liberals who might um, might have like Martin Luther King, only because of um, their fears of a of an unruly alternative, and um, and but many of the people who um, would co-opt Martin Luther King's message and try to further de-radicalize it would try to make it be either an individual personal struggle that Martin Luther King was not a social justice uh, activist. You know, there's many different ways that this is um, distorted, you know, historically. But um, I recommend the piece that Matt wrote. We actually published it at Fort Russ News a couple of years ago. The site was taken down. So he's republished it on the Canadian Patriot. So but it's a very good article and it really it really deconstructs the it goes into some of the biographical and financing of the people that were been trying to kind of destroy the legacy of MLK Jr. So. Yeah, I believe the title of his uh, newsletter, Matt's newsletter, was the second uh, assassination of Martin Luther King. I mean, yeah, something like that. 
<laughs> so, yeah. well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, so now let's go to what's happening in the pan-Arab world. Because you know what's always confusing me, Joaquin, is that, or I've always have this question on how come those conflicts seem to, you know, exist forever. But those areas like uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and those areas, they have so much culture that is, uh, for when I meet people from those areas, they're unbelievable intelligent. They're so aware of their history. They're very artistic. And it, seem, it seems like everything that's been happening there is they've been trying to just like kill, 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 kill their existence. And then the collective West, let's say, you know, America is not even a set, it's just a hundred years old, uh, you know. So, yeah, so yeah. educate us more on what's happening. You know, when you look, uh, first of all, I would say that generally this is a region of the world that is not unlike most of the rest of the world. And, um, you know, look, if you were living in, in Europe, this is this kind of a, just a point to kind of draw upon language and kind of ideology and our how we relate to the world is kind of like, it's very common to refer to that part of the world as one that is just inherently unstable or prone to war. But um, in fact, you know, this is really something that comes about through great game geopolitics around the middle end of the 19th century, um, except for a few, you know, big fights between Egyptians and Ottomans. Uh, you know, for five, 600 years, it wasn't a whole bunch going on. I mean, um, there you had, uh, you know, from 1400s onward until, you know, one World War One, you basically didn't have a whole lot of this, a very low, very low number of receipts to show for the claim that this is an inherently violent part of the world. Um, this seems to be a period of intermarium between, or rather interregnum between kingdoms right now, uh, between stable periods of rule in the region. Of course, you had the Ottoman period for, you know, gosh, uh, somewhere short of a thousand years, um, seven, eight hundred years. Um, and um, and then you have and then we go into the 20th century and, you know, you have the French and the British primarily uh, heavily involved in the Levant and in Egypt and the Turks, of course, and their pieces post-World War One, uh, Turkey, of course, uh, post-Ottoman. Um, and uh, so if you were um, a journalist, uh, you know, maybe from Saudi Arabia, and you were living in the 1950s in Germany or France, you could write, you know, well, this region of the world is known for big wars and a lot of violence. I mean, the two biggest wars in known history had just occurred in Europe between France and Germany. So in the 1950s, you could point to two of them that had just happened, and yet no one talks about Western Europe as being a violence-prone part of the world. So just kind of strange to kind of how we focus on kind of small windows in time where there's in between what are typically larger periods of stability and then kind of define the whole thing based upon that snapshot in time. So I would say more, I'm not an idealist. I think wars are common, but um, 
what's going on in the region is there's nothing that you would point to like in the religion or the culture or the food or something or the language that makes them prone to violence. You see what I'm saying? So this is this is what you would expect when you had a kind of network and a way of doing things for centuries and centuries. And then, well, about 100 and 110 years ago, we're doing things very differently now. And that's not that long of a time. As you just said, the United States only been around for a couple hundred years. And um, so, um, yeah, that, that's enough time. A hundred years is enough time to leave an impression in our minds about that. But I wouldn't say that this is a particularly violence prone part of the world. Um, now, um, there's been kind of a lot of back channel attempts at rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran going back to, you know, at least 2015, 2016. The rise of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, uh, the prince in Saudi Arabia, his mass arrest of many of the members of the ruling family some five or six years ago. People will recall they were all imprisoned in a hotel and they were all sleeping on mattresses in the lobby while he was processing them and getting everyone their charges. Um, they, they've, there's been a total power shift in Saudi Arabia in the past uh, five to 10 years. And, um, and that has allowed them to, to change a lot of the things they were doing. But this, the biggest shift in power in Saudi Arabia kind of happened midstream as the old guard in Saudi Arabia, you know, their plans for Syria were disintegrating, their plans in Syria were falling apart. And yet they had built up an, uh, a lot of force potential um, for, for a phase two. Um, my hypothesis is that the activities in Yemen, um, while there was some opportunism on the part of the Iranians to get their people, you know, on, that are kind of closer to them, so-called Houthis, um, you know, they're Shia, but they're not Twelvers. So um, they're uh, they're uh, they're closer. They're closer, more closer religiously to the Iranians, but they're not like the specific. Iranian branch of of um, of Shiism. So, anyway, um, what I would look at then is um, with the Houthis. You know, this is going back to the civil war in the 90s, and you had the Russians were actually involved in this part because there was a Soviet-backed Yemen kind of thing going on. There was different. There's different ethnicities and religious stuff going on there, but the this has been not a a contentious place in the world historically. Um, and this is not like something that this is something, oh, there's always something bad going on in Yemen. Um, this is again, uh, you're looking at the collapse of the Soviet Union. You're looking about at the reorientation of a lot of the kind of chess pieces and the geopolitics, especially in the Middle East. So as um, as Saudi Arabia was losing in, in Syria, but also had been building up a force potential for what they were going to maybe do in Iraq or Syria, you know, in some other stage with their military proper, um, they then kind of redirected towards Yemen. And uh, this was, seems almost like an adventure, but it was very interesting because you had the um, Al Qaeda groups were also deployed. And uh, it's always questionable, like who's Al Qaeda, which Al Qaeda, um, but they were, there was definitely. Um, heavy Saudi uh, involvement through those channels, even before the direct Saudi intervention in Yemen. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting geopolitics in the region because 
a lot of the same countries that are kind of at odds with each other in one theater over here are working together in some over theater yonder. So this is what we're seeing a lot. I mean, just conclusively think about Libya. Think about where Turkey is on Libya and look at where Egypt is on Libya. They're like on opposite ends on the Libya equation, right? But yet Russia and France were kind of on the same side with Egypt on, on Libya. This is you're talking about Libya recently, you know, with Haftar. Um, and, uh, and yet, you know, the, the Turks and the French and, and sorry, the Turks and the European Union minus France were um, on the side of the, um, of the, of the uh, uh, congressional, whatever it's called, the Congress, the government of the Congress, unitary government. So, um, you know, this is, makes for the kind of, you know, interlocking network of the web of whatever, uh, and uh, it can always, you know, pull the wrong way and things can totally unwind and destabilize. I mean, it is so delicate the way things are stacked up. I mean, uh, you, you really can't talk about what's happening without mentioning this war that or this brutality that Israel is waging uh, on Gaza. So, I mean, this is like you have, you know, um, so much focus on the relationship between Iran and Hamas um, was neglecting the role of Qatar. And in reality, Qatar is like, Hamas is like based in Qatar practically. And, uh, you know, it, it's just the, the whole, the whole geopolitics is such a mess there, but the realignment that's happening, um, you know, it's the pieces that have moved needed to move. And because certain pieces have moved, it creates openings and opportunities that didn't exist before. There's a there's not a power vacuum in the region. There's been a total power shift. The This really was concretized after 2013, when then uh, Prime Minister Cameron uh, in, um, in the UK did not authorize the use of the Royal Air Force to strike uh, Damascus or Aleppo or whatever it was. And instead there's something very interesting uh, it's something that actually precedent and you know normal procedure would call for, but that hasn't stopped most politicians in the past. He turns to the parliament and says, I need a vote <laughs> uh, to approve this kind of kinetic action in Syria. And the parliament did not approve of this. So this was over a decade ago now. I think that was the real turning point. And then you can look at when the Russians entered the theater 2015-16, and the deconfliction talks that then would come into being between uh, then Secretary of State. Um, it was, uh, who was it at the time? Uh, Kerry. And uh, Kerry with Lavrov. And uh, those deconfliction talks were really focused on the um, reality that the United States was unprepared for any kind of sustained conflict with a, with a, with a regional hegemon. They had been playing upon vacuum politics following the destruction of Iraq for, you know, a decade and a half. So this is like a very, very critical place right now in the world. And um, I, I guess the most important takeaway that listeners, you know, might, if there's like a single thing to take away from that would be that anyone, you know, any anything that escalates in any one place can um, can really, really be the undoing for 
um, a lot of the Western powers. And I say that because this is coming down to um, calling a bluff. And I, it, maybe that bluff was just called. And there was just news and maybe um, my colleague here is in a better place to speak to it. But out of the UK, um, uh, Rishi was supposed to deploy some uh, military assets to, um, I, I, I think it was uh, the Red Sea or to the, uh, yes, to the, um, near the uh, strait uh, by Yemen or, or Mus. And, um, and uh, they are unable to because they, they don't have a su supply ship. They don't have support staff for it. So this is just something I re read quickly the other day. And it reminded me so very much, just superficially, I didn't get into the details, but it reminded me very much of the, the fake fight happening in the United States over the funding for Ukraine. This is such a fake fight because it's not a political, it's not a real political fight over money. This is an absence of 155 millimeter shells. This is an absence of a commitment to trigger Russia to, you know, do something, you know, even more invasive than they've done. So uh, it's, um, yeah, that's, that's where it is. Just on the Russian conflict, because the last time we had a good discussion, you were giving us an update with what's happening with uh, the Ukraine and Russia. And I believe on the 30th of December, the Ukraine attacked inside of Russia. So you might kind of give us an update yeah. on that and the retaliation as well that happened. Yeah, I mean, there was, uh, the Ukrainians hit Belgorod uh, a number of times, and this is happening um, right as news is coming out and where they're losing support and they're uh, politically um, in the their political capital, you should say, their media attention. Um, the world is tired of of uh, the Ukraine story. There's a, that's the attention span um, for something that doesn't directly involve people. You know, I mean, it, it, it's it does affect people uh, very much, but in terms of the idea that everyone would support Ukraine, there's nothing that people positively get out of supporting Ukraine that they can like tangibly point to, right? It doesn't do anything for them spiritually, doesn't, it's not uh, economically, doesn't help, you know, how they see the world, uh, doesn't improve the world rather. Um, it's, um, you know, so you had these, this overall, I would say vacuum. Anyway, um, the Telegraph UK's podcast is called, you know, Ukraine Now, What's Happening Now or what, whatever. And, uh, and it's totally propaganda, of course. Um, but it's very telling that the, the themes that they focus on tell you a lot about really what's going on. And the people that they interview who are really insiders in Ukraine, in terms of messaging, um, sometimes are overly candid. So sometimes they say the quiet part out loud. Um, so a number of these operations, um, they've effectively admitted to terrorism is the kind of the long story there. And I know it's kind of like, what? Yeah, um, because what they've done is they've admitted that these attacks, whether they're the attacks on Belgorod region, whether these uh, drone attacks from earlier last year that hit some expensive apartments in some nice neighborhood in Moscow that um, when when asked about it, um, the Ukrainians are saying that that they don't see these as having direct military, you know, 
outcome that these are not really military targets that, that this is a psychological war and that's the definition of terrorism like when you blow things up to like create some change in the political mood among a population that's that's terrorism right so um they're not military targets and, I, and again we've talked about the problem of dual use of civilian stuff that's used for the military um the fact that you know, societies, you know, uh, if, if you have a factory that's producing bushings for cars, those are also producing bushings for trucks that are used in the military. So there's many, many things that people think are war crimes that are not really war crimes. And I mean, more broadly, we should understand that's why we're against war in general. War should never have to start. We should always prevent them from happening because in many ways, war itself is a crime. Once you get into a war, it's like you're not going to have uh, you know, offsides, you know, yellow card, policeman and shit like that. Excuse my French. So, um, however, it is important to know when you compare what's happening in Ukraine to Gaza, you can see the difference. You can feel the difference. It's, it's obvious that, um, that Russia has been not hitting Ukraine the way that Israel has been hitting Gaza, or we'd have lots of Gaza-like footage coming from Ukraine. We just don't have any footage from Ukraine. And there's like no footage of any civilians ever getting killed in Ukraine, period, okay? And we're talking about just hundreds of Ukrainian telegram channels. This is a war that's being televised. This is a drone on everyone's, you know, helmet, right? This is a camera everywhere is telling you and you can see what's happening. So, um, you know, uh, after this attack on Belgorod, uh, I think that the, that the Russian leadership may have also called this terrorism I, I think they may have referred to it that way but i don't i don't want to misrepresent but i it uh i classified that as terrorism those attacks immediately um because of the lack of any articulable military target i mean even a dual purpose manufacturing or or you know arguably arguably you could even say a fire department and i know that's a horrible thing to say Right. But that in a war that could arguably be a, a legitimate target. And yet um, there was no articulable thing like that. It was just to create a psychological effect. Uh, to, in other words, to terrorize the population so that they petition their government to change the policy. So um, now um, after that, um, I think. Putin was speaking publicly immediately after that, and they talked about what had just happened. And he said that um, that, they're re that they were going to respond, and uh, but they weren't going to respond the way that Ukraine had hit them. And he he articulated at the time that if you actually look at what Russia has and what Russia you know militarily in terms of its um, missiles, rockets. They could level Kiev if they were trying to do what Israel is doing in Gaza, that they could do that. And so he pointed out that they haven't. Then they, I think over the next couple of days, they would then hit multiple different targets in Kiev and Kharkov predominantly. They hit a lot of, um, of weapons depots and they hit a um, storage, they, they claim, okay? These are claims from the Russian MOD. Uh, they claim that they hit um, a storage of a Patriot missiles uh, in addition to when the, their strikes took out some batteries. So this has further degraded the Ukrainian air defense systems, but these are in the interior, deeper in the interior of the country. And um, 
Yes. I mean, since we talked then, right, then we had December 30th, that's what we just talked about. And in the past two weeks, it's been every day you hear something um, about the Ukrainians are having to reduce the number of operations they conduct in a given day. And other units are withdrawing meters, sometimes kilometers, because they don't have the, they can't, um, and again, it's it's not like they aren't there. It isn't like they aren't there to fight, but they don't have the material to fight with. They don't have the support. They don't have the 155 millimeter shells are totally out of them. Um, Zelensky made a public statement saying they were basically all out of them in December or November. So um, we're, you're seeing this happening now um, in, in the field. And uh, this is like, when you're looking at the, the disparity on a number of things has, you know, um, in in complex systems, in complex systems, um, you have this principle that is best characterized as the straw that broke the camel's back. So in complex systems like a military society, right? Telegraph UK's podcast just talked about how you need six Ukrainians working to support each Ukrainian soldier. Right. So be, this is we're talking about, like the logistics of war. Um, they need so much money to keep going and all their, their entire country is being funded externally. They have they're producing nothing internally that puts them anywhere near where they would need to be to produce. So. Um, uh, I'm trying to think um, the disparity in drones has is reaching greater levels of concern on the ukrainian side that um you know if russia were to deploy a mass drone attack like they also did in the dates surround, uh, surrounding december 30th january 1st around there um they don't there there are concerns in the in the command structure that the um that their units whose job is to police other units to keep them in the field are called like line enforcers that the line enforcers themselves are going to be leaving or abandoning positions and once you get these line enforcers gone you're going to have guys just retreating that see you have guys the average age is 46 years old and they're and they're fathers and if you have less than four or five kids then you can't get an exemption and it's interesting that Ukraine has been targeting this age group of men. So you have a whole bunch of guys that are in their 20s and 30s that are not being tapped for military service. So there's something going on. You're thinking about a whole generation. It's like, okay, so this is about that Ukraine is going to burn through a population that's then they're not going to have to be paying pensions on. You think about 20 years from now, he's gonna, these guys are going to be about 65 in the year 2045. So this is like, you know, how are they trying to do the mathematics of, of liquidating some portion of the population to show something on the books? Like they need to return the women to the country also. Like the number of women that are now outside of Ukraine um, is causing a greater drain on the Ukrainian economy today than the 20 billion annual that Ukraine relies on from Brussels to maintain its basic government, critical services, fire police. So in other words, their, their, their loss of tax revenue from just the women who've left the country since the war started 
it makes all of the loans or help to Ukraine void. So it's a totally crazy situation. And this goes into the Great Reset. And this goes into um, creating a metaverse and um, having kind of uh, track and trace similar to where your phone was used to get into grocery stores and stuff like that. Now for refugees from Ukraine, they want to make their phone be like a biometric passport that also automatically deducts their wages, their taxes and sends to Kiev, like their the labor value or tax value they produce. Let's say they're living in Germany, but instead of their taxes going to Germany, their taxes are going to go to Kiev. So this is something that they can do whether or not Ukraine exists. And they can do this for 50 or 100 more years. They could have a fictional metaverse Ukraine. They could have just your personal tax ID number, then all the money, then all the money you make, whatever is just going to be showing up as credits on a computer screen at the, you know, the uh, in Warsaw or Brussels, which is the Kiev government somewhere uh, externally, right? The, the government in hiding or the government at large or whatever. Uh, we've seen this with Syria. We've seen this with Libya, the Transitional National Council, et cetera. So we know the routine. There's gonna, they're going to try to have a Kiev government like long after Russia's done fighting and long after the status of Kiev or any other place is settled. Like there will be a, a point in time in the near future with very little violence in that region. And I don't know about the future status of Kiev, but there will be very little violence or the conflict will not be over. This is not going to be something that has a kind of slow burn, medium intensity stuff going on in Eastern Europe and definitely the same way you see in freaking Aleppo or in, uh, you know, north, uh, <clears throat> northeast Syria, Kurdistan. You're not going to have this ongoing thing there. They're not going to do that. So this is not the way this goes down. So um, to me, that says that... Um, they want to use, and they've said this before, there was just a World Economic Forum meeting and the Ukrainians were present. And they've said numerous times at every opportunity, Zelensky speaking at the World Economic Forum last year or year or the year before, said that they're gonna be the that Ukraine was gonna be the first, you know, fully digital, paperless, great reset country. It was gonna be the model of the great reset. You know, and it was interesting is that some of the people in Ukrainian civil society and his spokespeople and people, consultants in government who've been promoting this are into this kind of uh, tech uh, technocracy, kind of a weird, uh, a kind of a, a, a grim, gloomy, gray kind of future of, of, of you know, brutalesque buildings and uh, gray skies and surveillance drones everywhere kind of uh, dystopic uh, vision that these leaders in Ukraine are promoting. Uh, and they're saying this openly and, and they think that they're very Western and very futuristic and very techno-centric in being this way. It's kind of a cargo cult a culture in post-communist among liberals and kind of Western looking people in the post-communist world, kind of a cargo cult of Western futurism. They, they still believe in it because they, they haven't lived in it. So they don't know that it's just marketing. So it's um, a lot of these guys really believe in it. And um, so 
they can't get the Ukrainians to come back to Ukraine to fight. Um, I think one of the Baltic states just reversed its position the, the day before yesterday on it on Saturday. And uh, they're not going to be sending Ukrainians back home. And um, that's going to be very difficult. Um, it's, um, you know, many, many people in Ukraine. I mean, we're talking 50 to 80,000 people in Ukraine have already paid between three and $8,000 to not serve. But how much time did that buy them? And what's going to happen in three months, in six months. So what happens when people who've already paid the system to not be drafted, then get drafted, right? What's gonna happen to the social meltdown in Ukrainian society? Um, keep these things in mind. Keep keep in mind that when, um, that, the, that the big report that was written, sorry, was there a question? But keep in keep in mind that the big report that was written uh, for um, by, by the Zeluzhny um, for um, the was it the Economist uh, had a whole PDF and it and it was actually his report that they ran and it's very telling and it's while it's been misquoted and, and kind of misrepresented by you know uh, everyone that got their you know that was talking about it basically um, you can tease the truth out of it. And um, one of the truths that they said is that he says, look, the Ukraine, the military um, has, I'm going to paraphrase, okay, basically has an appetite based upon your plugins. If you plug in that we need that, that there is no change in our goals. So Ukraine has not made, the military has made no official change in their goals, right? The goal is to recapture Crimea, recapture uh, all of the what they call the occupied territories. So that's four other oblasts and Crimea, right? So um, they haven't changed that. They haven't changed their goals. That's an input. That's a that's a, a now a constant, right? That's not a variable. So the variable that the, that the military says, okay, it spits back at you. Oh, we need three hundred thousand soldiers. Right. In other words, you plug in. We need to do this. The machine spits back at you. We need 300,000 soldiers. OK, so ever since. June, there's been documents for a mobilization sitting on Zelensky's desk that he's been unable to sign. He's unable to sign it for a whole slew of political reasons. But this is what would need to be signed to do the mobilization to get the numbers. So instead, they, they did some other stunt. They declared a state of emergency temporarily, and they set up checkpoints everywhere for something, and they were denying that it had anything to do with drafting people. Turned out that's what they were doing. So they're, they're doing their, this is a very sad time in Ukraine. This is a very dark hour. It's the machine is cannibalizing the population, and the people in Western media who claim to care about Ukraine the most. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're Ukrainians. Um, setting aside any doubts over their convictions or what they really think, like assuming they really love Ukraine as much as they say they do, you have to question if, they, if they're in love with their own ideal, and in a sense, if they're in love with themselves or an extension of themselves, their idealized version of what Ukraine should be in their own minds and they're willing to sacrifice every Ukrainian human being that really exists. 
in pursuit of that aim, of that dream, of that goal, of that utopia. And that has led to, you know, three, four hundred thousand killed Ukrainian men and thousands of Ukrainian soldiers um, have died after being released from the hospital. Thousands of Ukrainian soldiers have died in hospital only so they could be denied the payout for having died in action. There have been so many games that have been played on the Ukrainian population. There are thousands of men who are still disappeared, who their families know that they're dead, but the government's playing games to not release the monies, the pensions to the families of the deceased soldiers. So this is such, there's so many scandals happening in Ukraine right now. This is all going on inside of Ukraine and, the, and, um, and, and yet where there should be genuine love and genuine concern over the outcome of, of the lives of these people, the people who've gotten in front of Ukrainians and said, we love Ukraine the most, like they're the ones responsible for what we're seeing there now. Any, any, any government, any responsible government would look at what is happening and they would sue for peace. They would sue for peace yesterday. So it is, um, it's reprehensible what is happening. And, and by the way, everything I've said, a person can make that point and disagree with the Russian endeavor entirely. By the way, this is all about what a responsible Ukrainian government would do today, protecting its state and its civilians, right? That's what it has to do. So there's something that there's some very large dereliction of primary duty going on in Kiev. And I think that is going to cause a civil disobedience and civil outbreak is the next stage. There could be a Maidan 2.0 in Ukraine, a different type of Maidan a different type of color revolution than we've seen uh, up until now. Just uh, finally, before I pass you on to Hartmut, I find it strange that we're just seeing so many people in the Ukraine recording everything that I would have thought they would have taken out the telecommunications. But what you were saying, you know, about all the tracking and everything, like a lot of that is kind of connected to 5G as well and the dangers of that. And I have seen that Russia banned that and... Right. Like it's all over Poland, it's all over Ireland and the UK, yet everybody's looking at Russia as being the bad boy and they're the one protecting their citizens. Yeah, it's a very, very strange, you know, it's this is a very weird thing. And, and um, yeah, I, I was raised, you know, to be wary of uh, McCarthyism, we called it at the time. Uh, in the United States, McCarthyism was a form of it was a form of, of American exceptionalism taken to toxic extremes, really. And it was all about the rest of the world are the bad guys. Um, and this McCarthyism was paranoid that everyone was a communist, but you could substitute that for a Russian sympathizer or whatever today. It's the same geopolitics that we had in the Cold War, but they've marketed it to a new generation. These are people that were born between 1946 and 1965, roughly. And um, they've marketed this worldview towards them. Uh, I noticed that this is a, a worldview that um, they, they, they take for granted that the, the, the stability or the appearance of stability in which they grew up or lived 
in the 50s and the 60s, coming of age in the 60s and 70s, being born right after World War II, they, um, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, seem to be like you look at the polling and what's going on and how the politics is being marketed. They seem to be of the opinion that everything was kind of going well in the world until Russia started doing something bad recently. We're not exactly sure, but Putin did something. We're not exactly sure what it was, but definitely Putin's bad. And um, and this is a very strange worldview, right, to, to a lot of other people, because um, most people are looking at and I'm not suggesting that many politicians are worth, you know, the time or or whatever. But we're talking about the reasons and what motivates people to vote. Um, people today talking about median voter, average voter, they're looking at their own interest in the voting. They're looking at, you know, where do I sit? And um, we live in a new time and there's much less of the old type of prejudice that used to exist in prior generations. So there's a lot of, but there's a lot of conflict between generations in understanding what's going on politically. So what I'm trying to say is that um, the the post-World War II baby boom and that generation that was very heavily subsidized in the West, and they created kind of a whole shell and bubble reality around them about how things work and what's considered normal, and everyone wakes up at this time, and here's the police officer, and here's a firefighter, and stuff like that, and uh, they really heavily promoted this, and, um, and when they, uh, they, they, despite, you know, the, they, they were coming of age when the four who died trying were killed. And this had a very uh, large impact on the shaping of their thinking. And it, it, um, it polarized them. And what it really did is it, is it a few of them became very much more radicalized from that. Most of them got back in line. They're like, okay, these are the limits, right? These are the limits. When you get out of line, they kill you, right? And they say, yes, but here's credit cards. So you don't have to die and now you've got credit cards. So they kind of did this whole, that whole generation that way. And now, um, you know, the kind of the things that when, instead of learning the lessons about aggression or othering or different types of uh, phobia, xenophobia, russophobia in this particular case, instead of drawing the lessons from history that ought to be drawn. Um, they're they're looking at you know they're looking at issues. I don't even know what they're accusing Russia of doing or what makes. I'm trying to even understand what makes Russia the bad guy again. If they close down some gay clubs or something, but I don't I don't. I'm trying to understand what's the connection between that and you know sanctions, World War Three, and the, you see. So there's a lot of you know that when you kind of get down to it, the explanations disappear. And um, yeah, it's um, there's a big generational issue. And um, this is a, a huge electorate in the United States right now. They're probably the single biggest group um, as a voting block. And yet they're aged out of a lot of them are aged out of employment, but they're living off of 401ks. They're living off of properties that they accumulated and acquired throughout their lives. Their children and their grandchildren don't own property, interestingly. So this is a very different, very big cultural economic shift in the United States. And that generation 
tends to vote about things that don't affect them because everything for them is okay. So it's all about what can we do for someone else that helps them. Oh, we need to we need to help these people. We need to help Ukraine. We need to help you know. And sometimes it's hit and miss. Sometimes you've got a worthy target, and sometimes you don't. But it's not coming from their own you know eyes and ears on the ground assessment of what's going on with real living, breathing, working people. And that's you know that generation. It's I know it's a strange way of thinking about it, but that age group generation is has less contact with salt of the earth America because they've largely been saved from having to live a salt of the earth experience. So that's the, you know, that's the long and short of it. But yeah, it's um, the Russophobia that's, that's been promoted um, makes no sense to people um, who understand that things were not all good, you know, and then Russia, you know, ruined it. That, that narrative doesn't make sense for, you know, probably, you know, most majority, vast majority of people not in the prime Democrat party targeted demographic. So it's a very, very strange polarized time in the United States. It's um, the situation with the Russophobia is, uh, is only a question of the benefits. For example, the war in Ukraine, it's... Um, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that you discussed the, the social aspects of Ukraine and the population because this war is more about getting the getting the money from the Western people in the pocket of specific people. And um, they use the war for um, for a transfer. This is how it is. And, and the problem is with Ukraine, if I see it very in the dark mood, then I see that the Ukrainian country will maybe not survive. Because the 5.6 million people left the country, mostly people who are wealthy, mostly people who have good educations, and have the skills. 14.6 million people, um, they need aid in order in the country itself. So, and according to my figures, for example, the official figure of Ukraine is 500,000 soldiers is, are dead. The figure I got from the East is 1 million. And the Russian have, left, left, uh, have lost 300,000. So 1.3 million people died already in this war. And the it makes a lot of also with the psyche of the people. The psychological aspect is also very important. Um, because for example, it's, um, it's there are many layers. And the the Western world, the people who are behind the war in Ukraine, they know already that the war is lost. And in my opinion, it was uh, when they, for example, decided to deliver depleted uranium to the military of Ukraine. They know exactly what they do because depleted uranium is used for countries around Russia so that 
the very good soil of Ukraine is poisoned. You cannot produce any wheat anymore because it will not go. You cannot use it for export anymore because the radioactivity is in the wheat. It's the same in Afghanistan. So the only thing what Ukraine will have, the only solution which Ukraine will have in the near future is like Afghanistan to produce drugs, opium. And and if they produce the drugs, opium, then um, the Western world establish routes through Russia to the port, let's say to the port of St. Petersburg and other ports and capitals. And along these routes, this will be a big, it will be like a silk road only for drugs. And then you have drugs, uh, drug roads with a lot of new markets, bottles, etc. All the mafia will come up. And these people are then the next contacts in a potential war with Russia. So the depleted uranium, what is used in Ukraine right now, will destroy the export of wheat. And the, and the people who get in contact with it will, go, will get depressed. So the situation is um, in Ukraine very sad. Unfortunately, yeah, and and um, there are, I believe, there are secret technology which can repair the the soil again, but um, it will be not used. So the point is, from the social aspect, all the men are died, all the all the men and the women who 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 are the who are the basement of or the foundation of Ukraine have left. I, I will give you an example in Germany. We have 80 million people, but the whole economy, the whole economy of Germany is run by 17.6 million people. 17.6 million people are employers or have employed who are producing something for the export. And all the 80 and the rest are uh, people uh, who are retired who don't uh, who don't get any money who live on uh, on healthcare who have job in governments or who have who, or, or who are contractors of governments and who are depending on the money of governments so only 17 17 million people of 80 million people run the show and the same is in Ukraine yeah and if you take we have you have 43 million people in Ukraine, and now take uh, 20%. It's 8 million, and these 8 million are gone. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely a project to destroy Ukraine, and I mean, when you when you look at the the long game, the geopolitics, and the gravity of the relationship between Russia and Europe. Uh, Europe's been very much dependent on uh, Russian gas uh, imports uh, uh, since the 70s. And uh, I mean, they built the, the Soviets actually built the uh, the Brotherhood and Unity pipelines uh, through Soyuz uh, pipeline through Ukraine. Uh, and uh, Germany's been, uh, you know, powered by 
sheep, uh, clean burning Russian natural gas for, you know, longer than uh, many of us have been alive. So this is like all of a sudden to be cut off. Germany compared to the rest of G7 countries is paying 1.7 times the median energy cost of G7 countries. How can you be, how can that 17, those 17 million people be competitive, productive? How can they afford to be productive at those prices of energy? And like this, I view Europe does not have its own military per se. Uh, and yet taxes have not been low. There's been some compared to the United States by that metric, quite decent social safety net that you can point to some of those tax dollars have paid for, true. Um, but that's all schematics. At the, in the final analysis, Europe is the lowest hanging fruit and Ukraine is gonna to go to Russia no matter what. Yep. So it's like, you're the United States and you can't make yourself a, a whole lot more competitive, but you can certainly make a few other people a whole lot less competitive, which makes you more competitive in comparison. So reduce whatever extent after World War II, uh, whatever, to whatever extent that German capital, uh, European capital, normally productive capital or independent or investment capital flows that originate from industrial output or service economy that is directly uh, downstream from productive economy. We can call all of that productive capital. Yeah. And that's the war is on European productive capital. So yeah. now Ukraine will go back to Russia. So the only question for the United States is since the United States would like to harm Europe and since the United States would like to harm Russia, we can harm Europe and Russia by having Europe bankrupt itself in some way economically on the rocks of Ukraine. And we can make Ukraine, we can radiate Ukraine, we can make Ukraine a little less valuable and a whole lot more expensive to obtain by Russia. They're gonna get it either way. So you can either put a very high cost obstacle in front of them or let them have it. So that cost obstacle happens to include millions of innocent people that you just mentioned. And this is the crisis of the age. Yes, and uh, especially, for example, there are many people in Ukraine who are also um, Christ, uh, Orthodox Christ. And uh, now this church is forbidden because they say it's a Russian Orthodox, Orthodox but it's, it's completely not uh, connected. And uh, this is, uh, well, this is the worst, uh, this is the, the worst time since the beginning of the Cold War in the communist, in the communist state. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they, the um, Vatican and uh, NATO intelligence has been operating on the Orthodox Church for a long time. And yeah. um, I mean, they're there's been lots of, you know, that's a whole other story with like too many twists and turns because like uh, the West used the Orthodox Church in exile to destabilize the Soviet Union. 
And so they have, so the West has a lot of assets in correct canonical orthodoxy. And it's used its influence all the way up to Constantinople, Fanar. And yes, and it was that Constantinople under the influence of NATO and the Vatican that recognized the um, some new upstart Ukrainian church as as a autocephalous Orthodox Church of Ukraine. And uh, and they did the same thing in Montenegro too a couple years ago. And the Orthodox Church in Montenegro Montenegro historically is um, is the Serbian Orthodox Church. Like Montenegro is a region and um, are there cultural, are there ethnic Montenegrins? Like much less so than there are ethnic Welsh, to be honest. I mean, there it's are, there's Texans and there's Nebraskans and there's New Yorkers and there's Serbians and there's Montenegrins. You see, it's, it's not, it's a region of Serbia, so to speak. It's Montenegro and, but it's on the Adriatic. And so they, they had to cut that off from Serbia. And one of the things that they did is they started an autocephalous Orthodox church. You can't tell them apart looking at them uh, of the Montenegro of Montenegro. So they did that in Ukraine. And so because they have this fake one that they've established, they then banned the one that has been there since the beginning of, I guess, since the religion started, actually. Yeah. So and, the, uh, you talk about the new, you talk about the new Orthodox Church right now, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Yeah, I understand definitely. Yes. They, yeah. And and yeah. so it's like they've um, they've created a new one, and they've said that this is authentic. They've taken the one that's been there for 1,200 years or something, and yeah. said this is inauthentic, and yeah. um, and they've seized the properties of the church and they've imprisoned monks and stuff like this it's been catastrophic excuse me it's it's the one world uh, religion this of this orthodox church is part of the one world religion and the, yeah they, 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 uh, the that's what they're trying to do not. yes it's like <clears throat> this is uh connected to the vatican See, there, there's been it's very very like weird man like they have in uh ukraine see they had uh when the the polish have been catholics ever since the Crusades and um, they uh, they were they were Catholicized by the Germans during the Crusades through, you know, during the time all the way up to Latvia and Lithuania. Right. With yeah. the uh, yeah in the medieval period. So now the Poles are Catholic and the, but the uh, Ukrainians and Belarusians are Orthodox. Yeah. So when the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth was at its zenith, t territorially speaking, it had the whole you know, lots of parts of Ukraine. So um, in the West. So um, there were people there that were Orthodox. And um, then, uh, and you know, understand that literacy is, you know, 30% or 20% at this time going back hundreds of years. So at best. So people, you know, people didn't ever leave the village they were born in, you know. So you're going to the same church you've always been to and nothing from what you can see has changed. But when they pass around the little, the money, you know, put the money in the hat type of thing, the money goes to Vatican. Instead of staying there, 
which is one of the big differences in orthodoxy versus Catholicism is we don't have a pope and, you know, the money stays locally. So these people thought they were going to Orthodox Church. And it's kind of like a joke, right? They thought they're going to Orthodox Church, but it was actually been changed to what's called Greek Catholic. Now, today it's called Uniate. It's been called that for a while. It's perfectly fine religion for folks. They're normal people, beautiful people. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But originally how it started was people not knowing what they what the Vatican did is they went in with a Catholic church that was designed and, and was the same one because they took them over. So we're kind of seeing this like 2.0 of that process like all over again, except this time there being people are, you know, most people didn't know to ask or maybe some people were lied to. We don't know because this was hundreds of years ago and we know literacy was low. Today, people are being told this is the Orthodox Church, but politically in the network, it goes back to the Vatican and to NATO intelligence. And people wouldn't, Vatican NATO intelligence, yes, this goes back to World War II. Unfortunately, people have to connect these dots. And after World War II, they got all of their favorite Nazis back together to create you know, NATO intelligence, the CIA, and it's gonna have their friends in the Vatican, their friends in the, you know, the German military and the German and the Nazi party. So, and yes. people know, of course, about Operation Paperclip and so on. And this was done in religion as well. So, of course. And uh, uh, there is a book which is called The Vatican Assassin, from, uh, written by Eric, um, Eric John Phelps. Yes, and yes. This book he wrote that the Jesuits hate the Orthodox Church. The Jesuits, uh, the, the, the real enemy of the Vatican, is the Orthodox Church. And by establishing the new one, they try to destroy the real Orthodox Church as well. Yes, yes. And it's um, it's very sad because there are activists in the Western, in the Catholic Church, yeah, who have legitimate grievances about the politics in, in Vatican today. And, and of course, they tie it back to Vatican too anyway. And they, the, the kind of the, the visible changes and how the mass is no longer conducted in Latin and things like this. So you have different groups like uh, SSPX that are, they're not, uh, they're not set of antithesists. They're not denying that the Pope is the Pope. They're not exterior to the church. They are within the fold of the church and they're recognized and they have their own churches in France and, and England. And um, SSPX is growing. And the, like, when you, when you, get down to brass tacks with these people about many, many issues that are wrong in the world, you'd be like, wow, these people really get it, you know? And then all of a sudden, when it comes to orthodoxy, they're like, oh yes, we have a, like, we can kill them. They're the, they, these are the, the same as Satanists. It's like really, really strange that this level of militancy, right? So think about the Catholic church today. And there's so many different people that are, you know, peripheral in the church, recovering Catholics, um, very strong Catholics that want to see changes in the church. There's so many different people that have so many different relationships with Catholicism today. And you would think that in a movement within the church that is drawing people in because it wants to restore, you know, the, the, the liturgical, the, the original mass that wants to restore uh, the way mass is done. It wants to, you know, return to the art style and the architectural style and it wants to return to the 
dedication to the social institutions at the local level where you have the laity who are activists and they're involved in the community and tying social issues the community back to the church. See, all of that you would think is great here. And then they want to have the, the, the mass in Latin and everything. Wow, they want to go back and stuff. And then when you get into the geopolitics, it's like just talking to a robot like a NATO automaton. So yeah, 100% what mean, you're saying, spot on. The, 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 the lawyer, Karen Utes, who was a whistleblower from, from the World Bank, she exposed in one interview that all the secret services of the West world work together, like the banks. And uh, in this interview, she stated, stated that every, every secret service has to make an annual report to the Vatican. Yeah, so the situation is, is uh, and and uh, the um, Ukraine is, it, what I don't understand is, in the Ukraine, um, it's the most corrupt country in the world. Yes. On the one hand. And, and, mo and this means all the bad things which you are not allowed to produce in the civilized Western world, they are allowed to be produced in Ukraine. Right. This is what I didn't understand, how it does. How yeah, this no, it's totally, it's a very good thing. I mean, they had the biological weapons labs, then they're using the, they're using the, the, uh, the uh, depleted uranium shells. It's like they're doing, they're, they're Ukraine, it, these are the guys that said, like Zelensky and his team of people, they're like the ones that no one else would do it. You know, no one else would, would take it to this level. Uh, yeah. He was the guy that said, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it. Uh, irradiate our own population, false flags, blowing up nuclear power plants, uh, using depleted uranium shells, using cluster munitions of white phosphorus, triggering Russia yeah. up to the border of Poland. You know, I mean, you could honestly wind up with Russian tanks in Berlin at the way that things are going from Ukraine's perspective. They would go, they would take it all that way. So that's that's so <laughs> i mean they, they but they are this is a, a a culture though i mean this is a you you see this in movies like in the 1980s uh you we had this and because when you look at uh success culture in um in post-communist world it's very much a cargo cult of 1980s uh western tropes yeah so cocaine uh big money, Ferrari, like everything, you know, Robin Leach's lifestyles of the rich and famous, everything 1980s is like aspirational. Uh, everything is, is, is about, uh, yeah, aspirational programming, they call it. And, um, and the, the thing that they taught, like in films like The Secret to My Success, uh, Wall Street, uh, all those movies with uh, Corey Haim and Corey Feldman, you know, and all the, you know, anything with Michael J. Fox, anything with, uh, What's this guy uh, with the gerbil up his butt? Richard Gere. Um, you know, all of these, all, all, that whole thing was promoted so heavily as a global phenomenon and as the pinnacle and the, and the you know, the, the quintessential meaning of success. And, and in those films, in, the, in these films, when you get into, you know, salesman culture, uh, close, you know, closing, uh, a hard close or whatever, show me the money, you know, that all that stuff is like, these are the guys that really believe it in Ukraine. You see, these are the ones that say, oh, a million people fucking kill them. 
you know, sign me up for that. You know, I'm your guy. You need to do this. You need to uh, send everyone uh, who's over 40 years old to their deaths. Sign me up. I'm your guy. That's what it takes to get it done. I'm the guy who can get it done. And they feel proud saying that. They say they're bragging when they say that. They feel like, you know, empowered. You see, they think this is a good thing, whatever that means um, to them. So it's um, totally crazy. I'm sorry I missed the chat here. You know, the, the, the crazy thing is because I know, for example, that the Russians are... Oh, he's gone? Does he come back? Just continue. He might come back. Go ahead, yeah. Arnold, whatever is your response. Okay, my response is that um, the Russians, the Russian soldiers are surprised that the Ukrainian soldiers, which they prison right now, which they, which they, um, uh, which they uh, caught in, uh, in, the, in the field, they are over 60 years old. They are retired yeah. people. Yeah, so there are no young soldiers anymore. They don't have them. Yeah. Yeah, like you say in Ukraine. In Ukraine. They're, yeah, well they have that they get yeah. people soldiers from Ukraine side who are sixty or sixty-five or seventy years old. Yes. But this is like in Ukraine, they have men in their twenties and thirties. Yeah, but but the with their the recruiters are targeting people, men from who have lower access to social media, who have lower access, lower computer literacy without, who've never left their village. So they're like targeting people like on a social and economic basis within an age bracket in Ukraine because they're the least socially mobile people in Ukraine. That's who they're targeting for, rec for recruitment. So they have like, if you go like in Kiev, you'll see like nightclubs and, and shopping You'll see yeah. young people that would think the country's not at war. You see, and yeah. yes, you can explain a lot of that through corruption and a lot of that through because people who are in their 20s have parents who are still alive and maybe have $5,000 to pay for them to get out. Also, if you start going after the kids in their 20s for recruitment, they're going to be all over Twitter. They're, they're not some guy who's drinking a liter of vodka, you know, every other day. 20 kilometers from a peanut factory in the middle of nowhere in Ukraine. You see what I'm saying? Like this is, that's who they're going after in, that's who they're sending to the slaughter in Ukraine are people that are low skilled, that are already over the hill age wise, that are hitting up where they're going to be getting to the pension arena in the next couple of decades, who don't know how to get on Twitter, who don't know how to complain about, who don't, who don't know how to market their grievances in a, in a showy, you know, 21st century kind of way that you know that young people in Ukraine would start organizing resistance in a way that we would see if they were going after young people uh, in this. So yes, have they gone through their first army and their second army uh, that had the normal age range, like guys in their twenties? Yes, like, so that part of it, in terms of seeing why so many people are old in the army now, yes, they burnt through their young army, they did. But like you said, this is a population, they've still got 30, 40 million, 30 something million, 40 million people left in the country there, 27 million, whatever it is. And, you know, you'd figure 5 million of those people are healthy and, in, in, you know, eight, under 40, you know, um, but over 25. So they 
actually had a law that you can't mobilize people under 26 or 27. And they were thinking about changing that to 25 or 26. That's one of the things that Zelensky hasn't been able to move on for these political reasons. So like this is interesting because now there's a, a the things that Ukraine can't do to rebuild its army are being constrained by the reality of their of their demographics, but not just you know human beings with the you know beating heart with two legs demographics. Like they have to target demographics that can be targeted in the path of least resistance kind of way. That's what's so sick about this thing, by the way. I mean, it, just, it is so sick when you think about the calculation of who they're going to target to send to a meat grinder, guaranteed that for every 10 guys they send to the front, within a day, only four of them are alive still. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just unspeakable uh, crime being carried out by the government of, of Ukraine today, when you think about it like this. So I'm, I'm, my mind is, it's actually very depressing when you think about it like that. Uh, I, I got a news which I cannot verify, but I will tell it. Um, there was a planned attack from Russia on um, on the headquarter, and um, the people got the green light to attack this headquarter, and uh, the responsible guy. I'm very careful right now about that today. Yeah. Um, ordered a flight over the headquarter again. To, with drones to look what what's going on there, and the and the headquarter was before they want to start uh, before they got uh, wanted to press the button, it was full of women and children, and so he stopped it. Only to understand how it works. Yeah, and this is yeah. It- this is really. Uh, this is a. This is the war. The problem is, you can't. You cannot rely on any information what you get. It's unbelievable because everything is a lie. The war. The, the first thing which is, destroyed in the war is the truth. Yes, that's the first thing, that's destroyed in war is the truth. It's the the stakes are too high. Information is a premium, and information and you know people's minds and yeah these are um the highest stakes this is a high stake game the highest possible stake game that you can have is one that you have an outcome of a nuclear armageddon you know and they're playing games with it on this way but um uh their power in the west is going down yeah and it's important that the networks in the West can are not backed into a wall and put into a position where they feel like nothing is going to work for them or they have to just end it all. Like you want to, it's almost like you're negotiating with terrorists in a way, but you want to, you want to create incentives for them to, uh, to reorganize their networks in a way that the game they have right now is uh, zero sum on certain questions. So 
this team goes up, we go down. And that that's the logic that they're, you know, irretractably tied into. And they need to, many people in the West who have been living with their own lying governments for so long um, are, you know, very much would like to see their own army or their own state even destroyed in some conflict, but that would be catastrophic for all civilians involved everywhere. And, um, but people are getting these kinds of fantasies about their countries being destroyed even because their sense of the injustice is that great. But it's important that the elites in the West have alternatives and that they're, uh, there's no, there's no victory where you're going to have very powerful losers that are going to be doing, you know, fits and whatever of, of terrorism, you know, based out of the former centers of the colonial world, for example, you know, this. So it's important that there's a win-win solution here that Western capital centers can invest in Russia, can invest in India, can invest in China in ways that those countries retain their sovereignty. They have to set the rules. Countries have to set the rules about foreign investment. Foreign investors can't set the rules about how it works in your country. Um, that said, you don't, we don't want to back city of London or wall street into a corner. Um, there's enough, there is, there is enough wealth in the world to keep them placated and for the decision to be easier for them. And if we can get them thinking as individuals and not team A versus team B, if we can get them back to their you know, their default thinking, but these types of people have a the default thinking of the individual. And it takes a lot of effort to bring Western elites together because the ideology is inherently individualist. So the, so the ideological component and how it shapes the whole worldview is super strong. Uh, I mean, it's a super strong shell. It's a super strong attempt at building a, a coherent worldview of a system so that the elites kind of all exist within some shared universe of mental headspace. That's the only way to keep them on the same page with things. So once, once it's like, once the narrative is lost, you know, uh, investment is not like politics where in politics, you know, you have to vote for one and a vote for one is against the other, you know? And, but these people are economically minded and, they're, they understand that you can invest in A and you can invest in B and C and D, you know, and you can lose on a couple and win on a couple here. And so you diversify. And if Western investors and Western capital centers can understand it through that lens, and I think they do, I'm just, I'm talking about it kind of after the fact. The impetus for kinetic military action that represents one group against the other goes down. So I don't know how far down it's gone, but I can see that the UK has nuclear weapons. I can see that the United States has nuclear weapons. I can see that if they really wanted to defeat Russia, they couldn't, they could, they would have invested 10 years ago in some type of a great economic revival. You would have needed to first build institutions for a decade or two that 
established a strong bond between population and government, not uh, trauma bonding, not terrorism bonding, but like, hey, wages went up, healthcare, roads, infrastructure, education, all these things that people want. And that would build a sense of like, so if the government says things like, there's a very serious pandemic, we're concerned about your health, people would believe them. Or Russia is your enemy and we need to kill them before they kill us, people would believe them. So it's kind of a, a, a funny twist of fate or a funny way that it came about that the very same that the very same Reaganomics, despite you know what a cold warrior Reagan was, the very same Reaganomics, really it's not really Reaganomics, but people call it that, but the economic policy of the second half of Reagan's first term and his entire second term, let's say, post Paul Craig Roberts, let's say, is um, totally at odds with America being a strong country economically. So you have all the exporting of American jobs and exporting of the manufacturing and all this. So um, we can see how important manufacturing is and domestic and sovereign manufacturing is in a conflict like in Ukraine. Um, it's, it's bad enough that Ukraine didn't produce its own weapons in sufficient numbers. Um, the One of the Atlanticist, he's a CIA asset who works in Ukraine. His name is Carver. He's former military. He's a trafficker, a weapons trafficker, but he's a glorified weapons trafficker. So he's a lobbyist anyway. So he lobbies DC for weapons for Ukraine based upon the things that um, when Zelensky would say things like, oh, we need the long range, you know, the 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 British missiles, uh, shadow, whatever, stealth, whatever they are, was it shadow? Anyway, then people like Carver were the ones that worked behind the scenes and getting, making sure that Ukraine to organize the money and the people who has them and stuff like that. Carver said that one of Ukraine's, he did an interview with a very pro uh, Kia Punta, very pro regime newspaper in uh, Kiev. And uh, he told them, like, he basically washed his hands of them. I mean, he, this was like a year ago. And he says, you guys aren't going to win. So he's the one that's been working very hard at getting a lot of these weapons. And he knows the limits of these weapon systems. And uh, the the um, systems are very, the there are no, there there is an insufficient volume it's not a, there are no game changing weapons that exist. There are no game changing weapons that exist in sufficient volume to change the game. No, um, only uh, they can only make Russia more aggressive. That's it. That's it. So this is like, are you the more that you strike with stuff that you only have a few of, you're only going to irritate the Russians and you're going to justify the equation is like something like the longer range missile that you give Kiev, the more territory that Russia can say, we have to take it to create the security buffer, right? So if, if they're going to, if they're going to equip Kiev with 
very long range missiles, then it's like, then you're going to be hearing about the Russians moving into, you know, Lvov, you know, or uh, anywhere in, in Western Ukraine. So this is like the latest discussion about deploying British troops to Kiev as if they're going to be human shields. It's like they're not civilians. They're just going to get killed. And there's nothing left that the UK can follow that up with. This is not like having American troops at the DMZ in Korea in the 1970s. This is like the United States would need four to six months to get 50,000 guys across the Atlantic to, 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 you know, to back up the 50,000 guys that are in Germany now, maybe the 50,000 more guys in Poland, but this is insufficient altogether. So they're not going to, they're not going to, they, they, sorry, the Western elites see where this goes and they can see, you know, what the outcomes are. And, um, This is, the reason why yes. this is the reason why I think they used depleted uranium in order to to prepare already the situation after the war. Yes, a lot of the things they're doing are about preparing the situation after the war. Also, the what I was talking about with the um, taxes and having a tying each individual Ukrainian citizen to a digital Ukraine is is a prototype for how they want to do kind of a for everyone on, and make everyone on a tighter on the grid in the West, kind of like uh, social credit, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah, it's um, thank you. Thank you so much. It was an amazing interview. I really enjoyed it. And um, we, we need to cut because of the time. But uh, yeah, it's been a good, thank you for having me. Thank, thank you both, Hartmut, Joaquin. This is a good way to end. Unless, Joaquin, do you want to say a little bit about Gonzalo Lira? Um, yes, um, people may have heard by now that a few days ago, um, it was announced that Gonzalo Lira had been killed um, by the Ukrainian authorities. He um, was killed in custody. He was beaten. Um, and uh, the beating caused a problem to his um, lungs. Uh, may have like been a punctured lung or ribs broken, sternum into the lungs, and uh, he developed pneumonia. And he was denied treatment. And um, um. I don't know that this could have been prevented, but among a lot of the people that were following Ukraine um, were misled about, were being told there was people irresponsibly without direct empirical evidence saying that he was a SBU spy. And, um, and because of that, not because of that, but no doubt that accusation hampered efforts to unite people around the subject of getting him released. And so there's a there's a, a a failing on the alternative media side. Of course, Ukraine is going to be Ukraine. Yeah. 
but there's a real failing on the alternative media side because there were some people who are not so innocent themselves who were accusing an innocent person of things that hadn't been proven and um very very strange but yeah but yeah but the tragedy the fact that um this person never picked up a gun he was not involved in military operations he was not um, an activist he wasn't going to pro-russian events inside of ukraine he was just a lifestyle blogger who talked about questionable things things i don't agree with even uh perspectives i don't share about the opposite sex i would say um some people accuse him of being very misogynistic or whatever but this is like totally besides the point of his murder you know the, the fact that people are even bringing this up in connection to his uh his murder is like weird but um yeah it's it's had a silencing effect on a lot of people and uh if ukrainians are going to go after someone like lira who was more of a comedian if you ask me than anything else i mean he was a writer he was funny it's a it's a very very bad effect on speech and uh the u.s state department isn't gonna lift a finger for any americans who get in trouble you know if they're on the wrong side of the conflict even if they're just a writer or a whatever so yeah <coughs> very 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 bad situation and it, it was heartbreaking seeing his father just recently talked to Tucker Carlson about getting him released and you know the 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 Biden state department could have made one phone call and he would have been released immediately and uh they could have at least guaranteed they could have at least guaranteed his uh health and uh you know condition basic conditions if they you know and uh but this is this is the same government these are the same people from biden from from obama's state department just to understand what you're dealing with and it was the obama state department that first authorized the murder of american citizens by the u.s government through a drone strike program um obama murdered a father and son american citizens while they were in afghanistan um it doesn't matter what the accusation about who they were or what they were doing even is it's not even it's beneath mentioning because they were just at the at the end of the day they were killed without a trial they were killed obama and a, some kind of sealed indictment together basically with obama and a judge together acting as judge jury and executioner and um so this is the same these are the same people these are the same people so yeah it's that they would allow the ukrainian sbu which is really just an extension of the cia kill murder an american citizen in custody 
in Ukraine. Um, yeah, it's a uh, bit their modus operandi, unfortunately. Would you like to invite our audience to get in touch for to get in touch with you or uh, yes thank you yeah um yes thank you um and thank you for having me on uh new resistance on telegram is the best place only place to find me you know regularly um on rumble if you type in my name there's lots of old stuff new stuff from from different people um i don't have my own like collation of all the materials out there. But my telegram at New Resistance, um, I get most of it up out there somewhere for everyone. So yeah, it's um I appreciate folks like yourself who have come to uh rely even in some way on the channel for a lot of news because I curate it personally and very little of it in my writing but i'm only sharing like one thing out of maybe 50 things that i see so for folks who appreciate the lens through which i see things like this is the lens through which i see that you're basically kind of seeing what i see on that channel and uh so folks have wanted to folks have found it very valuable because i i edit i do a lot of the work of weeding out a lot of stuff from channels that just have you know like employees working for the channel and like just put something out every minute or five minutes or 10 minutes and um sometimes it warrants having something out every 10 minutes because it's that type of day and sometimes it doesn't so people appreciate that i don't put stuff something out just to put something out because the clock says it's time to put something out only things that are i think really critical um you know, and of course, I do the thing of confirmation bias. So if I have some thesis or theory and then I see something that is lending weight to what I've you know prognosticated or what I forecasted or whatever, yes, I will admit that I do favor it or highlight those news items which also you know align with things I said would happen in the past. So but other than that, it's you know people you know people appreciate it as a raw source. so yeah. Yeah, new resistance on Telegram. Yes, and it's highly appreciated by me, and you know, so I really depend on that. And when Joaquin stays quiet, I kind of get worried, if it's, you know, if something happened in health or other things. But I do know that he is very careful in posting whatever he needs to post there all for truth and all for our empowerment thank you Joaquin. i truly appreciate you one day I'll thank, have you. You. And thank I'll you thank you thank you thank you and to all our viewers please like subscribe and Joaquin also does the live stream in telegram and you know so get in touch with him through there and yeah it will be on bitshoot rumble on brighton and in any platform except for youtube all right. <laughs> we graduated from it. We got a medal of award already from YouTube. That's great. Take care, everyone, and source bless. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you.